The following episode of Wish We Were Here addresses violent subject matter that some listeners may find disturbing. To whom it may concern, in the murky placid depths, beneath the cool caressing mire, lies seven golden opportunities. Missed opportunities? Lovingly, Robert Brown. In May of 2000, Robert Brown spent his days alone in a cell at Old Max. Backed up against a bluff along the front range of the Rocky Mountains, it was the first prison built in the Colorado Territory in 1871. And it was the first in what would become an archipelago of 15 state and federal prisons in Fremont County, Colorado. Now 47 years old, bearded and pale, Brown was a shadow of the charming, ruggedly handsome man he'd once been. Five years had passed since he pled guilty to the murder of 13-year-old Heather Dawn Church in May of 1995. Plenty of time to stare down the long hallway of a life sentence. It's impossible to say if he was just bored, lonely, or if, perhaps, his conscience had begun to gnaw at him. But something inspired him to start sending cryptic poems to the DA's office in Colorado Springs. Foreign jurisdictions need not bother. The seven concerns no other. The seven sacred virgins entombed side by side, those less worthy are scattered wide. No advantage will be gained until your minds have been drained. Once they're drained, it becomes clear. Dig in deep for the ones too dear. If this enigma is to be solved, embrace the others who are involved. The high priestess thought not of importance, though practiced hysterical cries of ignorance. If you show no ambition to pursue this to fruition, you obviously are not the ones. This communion is forever done. Along with these letters, Brown also sent a hand-drawn map of the U.S. with numbers written into nine states. Alabama, three. Arkansas, five. California, two. Colorado, nine. Louisiana, 17. New Mexico, two. Oklahoma, two. Texas, seven. Washington, one. Forty-eight in total. Was it a body count? One of the detectives who'd helped put Brown in prison in the first place responded to his letters. He pressed Brown for clarity, demanded details, but made it known that he would not play games. When no clarity came, the letters were filed away, written off as the delusional ravings of a desperate and lonely convict. Two years later, a retired agent of the FBI and CIA would volunteer to work the huge backlog of cold cases for the El Paso County Sheriff's Department. He would discover the letters and strike up his own correspondence with Brown. This is Wish We Were Here. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. What do you do when someone else has information that you want or need and no reason to give it to you? when they're sitting in prison on a life sentence with nothing to gain and nothing to lose. You can't beat it out of them, and research shows that they probably won't give you any information that way if you tried. You can trade what you have to give, but what if that's not enough? On today's episode of Wish We Were Here, we tell the story of Charlie Hess, the man who managed to win the confessions of serial killer Robert Brown. After years in the FBI, the CIA, and other investigative agencies, Hess honed a unique ability to understand and relate to criminals. Not through intimidation or games of good cop, bad cop, but through trust and what he calls simply interviews. This is the story of Hess's career-defining case, 
which came almost two decades after he'd formally retired from law enforcement. My name is Charlie Hess, H-E-S-S, live here in Colorado Springs. Charlie Hess is a short and sturdy man with a mat of silver hair and a trim goatee. In his late 80s now, he walks slowly and speaks carefully, but he maintains a wry sense of humor and a knack for vivid storytelling. Born in 1927, Charlie spent the first years of his life in Cicero, Illinois. Cicero happens to be Al Capone's hometown. People who came out of Cicero were either mobsters or cops. I ended up being a cop. From an early age, Charlie was exposed to the stark realities of crime and policing. And when I was uh, in first grade, a friend of mine and I used to play in uh, a bunch of holes that were going to be basements until the Depression came in. They just ended up being holes, and we used to play there. That was our caves and stuff. One day on the way to school, you have to understand this was Depression and Prohibition. We looked down in the hole, and here's a big black limo, bullet-ridden, all the way from head to tail. Two guys slumped over. So we ran to the nearest cop, and the cops in Cicero were all crooked. They were worse than the mob. But we ran to this cop's house, and, you know, we're talking about prohibition. And the cop comes to the door, and he's got on his wife-beater shirt and his underwear, holding the bottle of booze, half empty, drunk in hell. What the hell do you kids want? It's 7.30 in the morning. Told them what happened. And he goes, I'll take care of it. He didn't even ask us where it was. For all I know, car could still be there. No, I know it's not. At that time, did you, you said, you know, kind of maybe jokingly, but that you were either going to be a cop or you were going to be in the mob. Did you have a sense for yourself, you know, which side of that line your allegiances kind of fell to? Uh, I didn't have to make up my mind. I had a very strict father who I loved dearly. There was no doubt where I was going to be going. It didn't necessarily mean cop, cop, cop per se. It meant that it was, I was going to be legitimate. When Charlie was a teenager, his parents bought a fishing resort and moved the family to Minocqua, a small town in northern Wisconsin. There, Charlie learned to guide hunting and fishing excursions with his father. A good life. But like many young men at the time, he was eager to see action as World War II raged halfway around the world. I asked uh, to graduate early. They accommodated me, and I joined the Navy. Four years or duration of the war. I was sent to the Philippines, where I had a, a good duty station. The war ended after maybe my first year there. So... I spent the next three years on lovely sand beaches, and it was a good investment. Did you did you like the sort of the structure of the military and of, of kind of being in uniform? I did. As I said, my dad was a wonderful man I loved dearly, but he was strict. So I had no problems following instructions. My enlistment was up. War was over. I attended Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin on the GI Bill. I majored in philosophy and football. 
After college, Charlie found work as a school teacher in a small town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He got married, had a kid, and paid $35 a month to rent a nice old house for his family. The kids at school were tough, but he earned their respect. He'd been teaching there for a few years when one day he went to visit a friend who was also a teacher in a nearby town. I went over to uh, visit him, see how he was doing, and the house was empty. And I thought, geez, what happened? So I I looked up the superintendent and I said, where's Cliff? Uh, He said, uh, he went to the FBI. I said, what what the hell does he know about the FBI? I mean... He's not a lawyer. He's not uh, an accountant. He says, I don't know. He said, but didn't your school get the notice? So he took me down to their school, and there was uh, uh, a letter from the Detroit office of the FBI encouraging people with uh, a baccalaureate degree or or more to uh, consider being an FBI agent. So I applied, and... uh, got notification to come to uh, Detroit for an interview. The interview went well. Within a few days, he received a telegram telling him to get to D.C. in a week for training. I didn't want to, you know, have anything messed up, so I got there two days early. I asked the cab driver, take me to a hotel. He took me to the Mayflower. Jesus, you know, by the time I paid the first night's rent, I had about 20 bucks left. Next day, of course, I changed and went to the YMCA, where it was about $6 a night. Charlie completed training, passed his tests, and was formally sworn in as an agent in the FBI. It was the greatest time in the world to be in the, in the FBI. Uh, the old man, Hoover, was great. Whatever other people thought about him, we loved him because his name, his presence, gave us uh, the opportunity. I could walk into a bank and talk to the president. Today, you're damn lucky if you could talk to the chief clerk or whatever. Hess was sent to San Antonio, where he learned Spanish and worked to cultivate informants in the criminal underground. He excelled at the work and received a meritorious raise his first year. Prostitutes, drug dealers, uh, thieves, um, murderers. You never knew what was going to happen. But I went shopping for him. You know, when I wasn't working on a specific case, I would take the time to go and, and mingle with these people. So your, your relationship with these informants, um, what was it like? You know, how, how did you find it? I treated them just like I'm treating you. And they're not used to that. They're used to cops swearing at them, calling them names, treating them like they're garbage. Well, I'm not defending them, but you don't have to talk to them like that. You don't have to treat them like that. You give them respect. And they're not anticipating that. I learned early that it's disarming. After 10 years with the Bureau, Charlie chose to move on. He was a good agent, but he had a drinking problem. Yeah, I, I did have a battle with, uh, with booze. I uh, left the FBI on, on good terms. Um, 
because I figured if I uh, ever got caught on the job that I would be fired, and, and so I resigned. A few years after he left the Bureau, Hess bumped into an old classmate from FBI agent training at the airport. We greeted each other and so forth, and we're starting to shoot the bull. And I said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, uh, I'm in Vietnam. I said, what the hell for? He says, well, I'm uh, an arms instructor for the National Police. I said, wow. I got to thinking, geez, I don't want to miss this either. So he gave me the information. I went through the drill. He sent me to language school in uh, Hawaii. Terrible assignment right there in uh, practically on the beach and learning the language as best we could. While in Vietnam, Charlie was recruited to work on the Phoenix Program, a controversial CIA operation targeting the Viet Cong political infrastructure. Much like in the FBI, Charlie was charged with cultivating informants, a task which proved more difficult in Vietnam than in San Antonio. Nevertheless, the work was good for him. I like Vietnam. Uh, I, I liked it eh, maybe a little better than the Bureau, maybe a little... Less. The Bureau was uh, quite strict, which was okay with me, but Vietnam was pretty loose. Uh, we didn't do much paperwork in the CIA. After some injuries and about with pneumonia, Charlie reluctantly left Vietnam and returned home to his wife in San Diego. I didn't want to come home. I, I really didn't want to come home. Uh, and that's a personal matter. Um, I, I wanted to stay there. Hess needed work. He got hooked up with an organization called the Federal Defenders, where he trained as a polygraph examiner. He had a knack for it. The polygraph school that I had attended under the auspices of Federal Defenders asked me if I would come to work for them as an instructor. And the offices were in New York. The guy that ran the school, a very famous guy, Cleve Baxter, it was his name. He was the guy that talked to plants, did all kinds of crazy things. Before working with plants, I hadn't really thought much about the idea of greater consciousness or awareness. Now I look around, but what I see has a different meaning. He, he was actually a genius, but he had some awfully quirky ways. But he was a, a great guy, and he asked me to be a partner. I said, yeah, I'll come to work for you, but I'm not coming to New York. And he said, ah, I've been wanting to move anyway. So he and his uh, partner moved to San Diego, where I was, and uh, they made me a third partner. No cash down, just you're in. We ran classes. I taught at the school. He liked the work, but eventually Charlie and Cleve Baxter's partner had a falling out. We were both drinking at the time. I don't mean that day. I mean, we were both drinking. I told Cleve Baxter, the boss, I said, you know, this isn't going to work, and I feel like I'm going to be an anchor. you got enough problems with one drunk. You don't need two. Charlie bottomed out. The drinking had taken its toll on his health, his work, and his relationships. His first wife divorced him, and he decided it might be time to leave law enforcement. He quit drinking and met the woman who would become his second wife. Her name was Josephine. 
Josephine Marino. Uh, she was very petite, but uh, she was a tough little Sicilian. After about a year with her, I said, let me take you down to the Baja Peninsula and show you the wonderful things. During his FBI days, Hess had spent some time flying into the Baja looking for downed planes. He'd befriended locals there and grown fond of the fishing. It seemed like a natural place to leave his old life behind. Charlie and Josephine saved up some money, bought a VW camper, and headed south. We took this whole trip down the peninsula and all the little side roads and places, and I said, what do you think about living down here? And she thought about it, and she said, I don't know, where? I said, well, you've seen all the places that I think are fit to live. She liked the little village of Bahia de Los Angeles. It was a small village where we had made friends practically overnight. With help from the locals, they built a house, leasing land from the local municipality for $400 a year. They helped friends and other gringos find real estate in the area. They lived simply. It's So you're kind of off the grid at this point. It sounds like a big departure from this career that you had been building and from the kind of prestige of the, the various jobs that you had with the FBI and the CIA. What was, what was it about getting off the grid that was attractive to you? I guess maybe I'd had enough of the, uh, I don't want to call it pressure because I loved every minute of what I was doing. But I think I was just ready for a different kind of life. And this, this was it. He and Josephine lived quietly on the Sea of Cortez for the better part of a decade. But the money started to run out, and they returned to the States temporarily to work for a friend's real estate company, scouting cheap motels that the company would buy and flip. They were in the States on one of these scouting expeditions when they got a call that would change their lives forever. This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back. This is Wish We Were Here. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. If you're just joining us, please note that this episode of Wish We Were Here addresses subject matter that some listeners may find disturbing. In this episode, we're telling the story of retired CIA and FBI agent Charlie Hess and his correspondence with suspected serial killer Robert Charles Brown. At this point in the story, it's 1991. Nearly a decade has passed since Charlie left his career in law enforcement and moved with his wife Josephine to Mexico's Baja Peninsula. While visiting the United States in the winter of that year, Hess got a phone call that would drag him back into the world he thought he'd left behind. My son-in-law, Stephen Vogt, married to my youngest daughter. He was a self-made contractor, a great guy, a great guy. And uh, they lived out by Peaceful Valley Road, and he was watching his brother's house, which was half mile away, while his brother went on vacation. 
Charlie's daughter Candace and her husband Stephen were living at the time in a sleepy neighborhood on the southeast side of Colorado Springs. It was the early morning of Christmas Eve 1991 when they got a phone call that something wasn't right at Stephen's brother's house. For some reason, the garage door was open. So he and my daughter drove over there, and the house was being burglarized by three gangbangers. Instead of calling the cops, Steve goes in, and one of these punks had a 22 pistol, and he killed my son-in-law. And these three punks ran. Two of them sped off, and one of them got left behind. And my daughter, they ran right by my daughter. It's, God only knows why they didn't shoot. Charlie and Josephine got the call later that morning. My wife Josephine and I jumped in the car. We were in Utah at the time. Drove to get here. We had no other family here. My daughter was in terrible distress. Uh, They'd been high school sweethearts. It wasn't long until the house was fully packed, people sleeping on the floor. Their friends from all over had come to uh, help her through this calamity. That brought us to Colorado. Uh, We had really no intentions of staying here until this drastic event. Um, So that's what put us here. Charlie and his wife left Mexico and resettled in Colorado Springs to be close to Candace. As time passed and they processed Stephen's violent death, Charlie began to feel the old pull of police work again. In 1995, his daughter helped elect John Anderson as El Paso County Sheriff. She made some introductions. It was around that time that he met Lou Smith. Uh, Lou Smith was probably one of the greatest detectives in the United States. And I don't, I don't say that just because Lou was a great friend of mine. He had solved about 200 homicides, which is absolutely incredible. Lou Smith had a reputation as something of a detective savant. He was the guy that departments brought in when the trail on a murder was beginning to go cold. He had a knack for looking at a scene and noticing details that other detectives had missed. He examined and re-examined those details until a lead began to emerge. There, there was nothing too small for him to just tear apart and investigate it. He was the kind of guy that never gave up until he had his man, so to speak. This keen attention to detail had helped Smith solve the vexing disappearance of 13-year-old Heather Dawn Church in the quiet Colorado Springs suburb of Black Forest. The eldest of four... Heather Church was a studious young woman with big black glasses and a wry smile. On the evening of September 17, 1991, she stayed at home babysitting her youngest brother Sage while her mom had taken her siblings out to a meeting at the Mormon church. When her mother returned home that night, she found the back door unlocked. Sage was alone in bed, but Heather was nowhere to be found. The early investigation quickly hit a dead end. Detectives, reporters, and a captivated general public speculated about whether this was a case of a troubled young runaway, a kidnapping, or something worse. With the investigation stalled, Lou Smith was called in to take a look at the scene. Though Lou was retired at the time, he was eager to pitch in. Going through the church home, he noticed a window screen in the kitchen that had been put into the frame incorrectly. It was the kind of almost imperceptible detail that only a detective like Smith would notice. And it paid off. 
Once dusted, the frame turned up a clear fingerprint that didn't match anyone in the family. It was a huge break, but they couldn't find a match in the local system. In 1991, there was no unified nationwide fingerprint database against which to test it. The investigation went dark. Then, two years later, Heather Don Church's remains were found off a remote mountain road to the west of Colorado Springs. Smith redoubled his efforts to find the owner of the fingerprint. Lou, being this tireless investigator, sent out dozens and dozens and dozens of copies of fingerprints to all the states in the Union to see if he could find a hit. And sure enough, he did get a hit, and uh, the hit indicated that the person was a Robert Brown. Robert Charles Brown was a drifter from the small town of Cushada, Louisiana. The match was found in California, where he'd been picked up years earlier driving a stolen car. They traced Brown's address at the time to a mobile home less than a mile from Heather Don Church's house. Brown was arrested coming out of an art supply store in downtown Colorado Springs, and shortly thereafter pled guilty to the murder of Heather Don Church. He was sentenced to life without parole and sent to Old Max Prison in Canyon City. With this sentence of life without parole, that was pretty much it from the investigative point of view in those days. Lou, since he had been brought in specifically for this investigation, felt that his job was complete because he'd already retired once, and now he retired again. Charlie met Lou a few years after the Heather Don Church case had been solved. As retired cops, the two ran in similar circles. They immediately hit it off. And we started hanging out together, playing racquetball and so forth, and... We were both getting bored because we had been active in investigations. Lou went to uh, John Anderson and said, Charlie and I would like to work cold cases as volunteers. And John was happy with that because no one was working cold cases at the time. Together, they started going through the Colorado Springs Police Department's cold case files. Walked into the room where the cold cases were in boxes and envelopes, and there was no organization. Well, that drove Lou Lou crazy. He just couldn't handle that. So that's what we did for about, uh, I'd say, six months as a guess. I don't know. Everything just had to be absolutely perfect, which it was by the time we got through by the time Lou got through. Around that time, the year 2000, they also connected with Scott Fisher, the retired publisher of the Gazette, the Colorado Springs Daily Paper. Yes, I'd become a friend of the uh, uh, sheriff, and um, he uh, basically told me I was too young to retire. I was about 56 years old, and uh, but I had 40 years with the company. So I decided to retire, and he said, what are you going to do with yourself? I said, I don't know. And he said, I can't retire at this age. And he said, is there anything you've ever done that you enjoy doing? And I said, well, I was a police officer for a little while when I was in college. <laughs> Helped put my way through school. So I said, I really enjoyed that. And he said, let me uh, call you back. I think I'm going to have, I'm going to get, uh, put together a little lunch. And uh, I may have something for you to do. Sheriff John Anderson set up a meeting with Scott Fisher, Charlie Hess, and Lou Smith and the cold case team was born. Lou, uh, having been at the sheriff's department for years as a commander, was kind of the, the senior of the three of us, and uh, we rolled up our sleeves and went to work. I was the only one that wasn't 
completely certified. So after about six months, I asked the sheriff if I could go through the Reserve Academy and become a certified deputy. Fisher went through training, where he was certified and cleared to work in earnest with Charlie and Lou. Together, they became known as the Apple Dumpling Gang, after the 1975 slapstick comedy of the same name. I couldn't figure out if that was a compliment or a slur. The three took to meeting regularly at her local bakery in Colorado Springs. They'd discuss cases over coffee and pastries. It was during one of these impromptu meetings that Charlie posed a question to Lou Smith. And I don't know why, but I said to Lou, uh, Lou, of, of these 200 guys that you put in the slammer, did you think that any of them were possibly serial killers? Lou thought and said, well, he named a couple guys, and then he said, no, not those. Maybe, maybe Robert Brown. And I knew nothing of Robert Brown, nor did I know anything about the Heather Church kidnapping and murder. But uh, here we are, and I said, have you ever tried to contact him since he's in prison? He said, no, I haven't. I said, well, would you mind if I write him? He says, hell no, you know, go ahead. He said, I can't, he hates me. I'm the one who put him there. Charlie dug into Robert Brown's file where he found the cryptic letters that Brown had sent to the DA two years earlier. To whom it may concern, in the murky, placid depths beneath... You know, you you couldn't even tell what he was really trying to articulate. And my guess is he wasn't trying to tell us anything. But for some reason, he was uh, willing to communicate. Sounds crazy, but I, I think Robert was getting lonely being in prison. Charlie also read the responses that a sheriff's detective had sent to Brown two years earlier. They were stern and demanding, and they hadn't elicited anything useful from Brown. Charlie decided to take a different tack, to build trust with Brown, stroke his ego a little. Dear Robert, in my endeavors here, I had occasion to review certain details of your case. I must say, I was very intrigued by correspondence you directed to the district attorney's office here, subsequent to your incarceration. The information you alluded to brings to mind previous high-profile matters I had handled, and I'm wondering if you feel it in your interest to grant me an interview. It has been my experience that intelligent, unique individuals oftentimes are in a position to illuminate matters that could never come to light via any other avenue. Hoping that you feel a contact would be of mutual value, I remain, sincerely, Charlie J. Hess. It seemed to work. Brown responded. Hello, Charlie. What specifically were you intrigued by? What high-profile matters were brought to mind? What matters would you like to be illuminated? My perception, accurate or distorted, will have a great bearing on the amount of what I share. Robert Charles Brown. June 11, 2002. Dear Robert, thank you for answering my letter. As to the question you posed, one, I was intrigued by the unique manner in which you originally chose to communicate, the map, the poetic verse, etc. Two, the cases it brought to mind were Ted Bundy, Henry Lucas, and Otis Toole. The matters where I sought illumination were those unsolved cases to which you alluded. It did appear that you wished to provide details by virtue of the information you provided. I feel you have a desire to clear up some pending matters. I, of course, have no idea as to your goal. As to my goal, 
Several years ago, our family experienced a tragic event. My son-in-law was murdered. The void created by his death can never be filled, but there is great solace in closure. I decided to do as much as I can to assist others in finding closure. I have wondered if you too would experience a form of relief by revealing information that would give peace to parties who have a relationship to any case where you have information. Perhaps we can both achieve our goals. Mine, closure. Yours, Charles J. Hess. The back and forth continued, with Brown insisting that his enigmatic clues about the murky, placid depths and seven sacred virgins ought to be enough for a discerning detective to track down more victims. As far as Charlie knew, it was possible that Brown was just playing games, but if Charlie was frustrated, he didn't show it. Brown was also a Vietnam vet, so Charlie made sure to mention their common experiences. August 5th, 2002. Dear Robert, what a peculiar world we live in. About 30 years ago, we were both trained to dispatch human beings and sent 12,000 miles away for that purpose. Now, you are being incarcerated for just that, and I am investigating the who, what, and where of it. The gods must be bewildered. Is it a stage in which we each have a role to play, or is the complexity of it beyond our comprehension? In an earlier communication, you inquired of an investigator if he was interested in notoriety and wealth. At age 75, neither of these elements were of importance to me, but before I leave this planet, I would like to make a difference in at least a few more instances. I am hoping we can discuss these matters on a factual basis. Permit me to pose a hypothetical. If an individual provides very cryptic information leading to the discovery of human remains, is that person less culpable than someone who gives precise detail? I believe you are trying to reach out to us, and believe me, we are trying to reach out to you. You know what our interest is. What is the quid pro quo? Since I am aware of your appearance, I am enclosing a photo so that you know mine. Sincerely, Charles J. Hess. Charlie included a picture of himself from a recent fishing trip, holding up a prize catch. August 26th, 2002. That's a nice yellow fin in the picture. Did that tuna taste as good as it looked? This place is overrun with simpletons who believe their employment makes them righteous beings. Rage motivates murder. Most homicides are crimes of passion and the passion of anger. Sometimes it's specific. A man murders his cheating wife. A son kills his sadistic father. Sometimes it's more general. Everybody deserves to die. It's up to you to settle the score. You mentioned the gods must be bewildered. I beg to differ. The gods must be ecstatic. I think the gods, at least the ones I am aware of, are taking great pleasure in the misguided squirming of humanity, which has created its gods to mirror itself. For example, the god of the Old Testament time and again killed thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children, and even their livestock. In addition, he had others kill in his name, time and again, thousands and thousands of men, women, and children. It eludes me how humans can worship such an evil, vindictive creature. Maybe it's as simple as humanity is in denial. Maybe Jack Nicholson's line, you can't handle the truth, encompasses all of humanity. I don't plan to be around much longer, so the quid pro quo, whatever it could be, is probably insignificant. I'm fatigued, so I guess I'll close for now. After months of letter writing, the only concrete clue that Brown had offered was a reference to a woman in Colorado Springs with a white Grand Dam, who he claimed to have killed in 1987 or 88. Charlie, Lou Smith, and Scott Fisher tried to track down the case, but they couldn't match the description to any missing persons reports or DMV records. 
In the meantime, the Apple Dumpling Gang had over a dozen cold cases that they were actively working, and Robert Brown's case wasn't one of them. I really think there's probably some time in that period that anybody that knew about the case had decided it wasn't worth pursuing and wondered why, why we were still doing it. Scott Fisher. We just kind of pulled that case out and started playing with it uh, just as something to do. And I guess what I'm really driving at is we didn't put a lot of time in this case. It was mostly Charlie writing letters, initially handwritten letters from home. Later, when it looked like there might be something to it, I started typing the letters and sending them out and, and developing uh, case files so that we had a you know a, a prosecutable case at some point if it did pan out. Many, including Scott Fisher, wondered whether the Brown case would amount to nothing more than a wild goose chase, but Charlie stuck with it. He just got that tenacity that he uh, he just... I don't know, I call it a gut feeling, and uh, I think it plays a big role in law enforcement. You just know in your gut that you're right, and you just don't turn loose. This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back. This is Wish We Were Here. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. In this episode, we're telling the story of retired FBI and CIA agent Charlie Hess and his correspondence with suspected serial killer Robert Charles Brown. If you're just joining us, please note that this episode of Wish We Were Here addresses subject matter that some listeners may find disturbing. The letters had been going back and forth between Charlie Hess and Robert Brown for almost two years. Brown offered vague details on murders he'd committed all over the country. There was a woman in a small town in Texas, a couple he'd left on a beach 200 miles north of San Francisco, the woman in the Holiday Inn in New Orleans, the Colorado Springs woman with the White Grand Dam, and many others. But none of the clues Brown offered led to anything tangible. Then, early in 2004, the letters stopped coming. Charlie decided to pay Robert his first face-to-face visit at Old Max in Canyon City. At this point, when a guy tells you he killed a couple of people, you know, you're going to cold, cold shot him, which means you just go in, which I did. When I got there, they put me in a small room, and they brought Robert in, and he had more chains on him than a tow truck. He was dripping in iron. And I said, you know who I am? He said, no. And I said, I'm Charlie Hess. I'm the guy that's been writing to you. Oh, he wasn't disturbed, like, what the hell are you doing here? Or, you know, get the F out or whatever. He said, I'd shake your hand, but I got these handcuffs behind me and all these chains. So I said, ah, that's no big deal. So I reached around and shook his hand. So what did you guys actually talk about in that first interview? Um, Most of it was uh, in the vernacular BS. Uh, Nothing specific other than the fact that he had dropped, that he had uh, killed a lady here in the Springs. 
but he didn't know her name. Um, all he knew was that she had a uh, white Pontiac. Brown also told Charlie that he stopped writing because he'd run out of money to buy stamps and paper. So Charlie offered to transfer 20 into Brown's prison account so they could resume their correspondence. It was a short meeting, but they agreed to meet again. Soon after, Brown sent Charlie another letter. He outlined for the first time what exactly he wanted in exchange for his cooperation. A checkup from a doctor outside Old Max, and to be transferred to a prison in a state with a better climate, if not better food. Charlie finally had something to work with, a card to play in his dealings with Brown. He went back to Old Max several times, and with each visit, the two built upon the rapport they developed through their letters. I never wanted to come across as a person who was evaluating him or being judgmental. Never. I I knew that that would not work, so I never did. One of the things that he liked most of all is where we ended up doing our interviews. After the first two or three interviews, they let us have a little tiny conference room for the employees. And he loved the fact that we could brew a pot of coffee for him. He didn't like the jailhouse coffee. Um, this one of the first things we would do when we went to this, when our later interviews were uh, in this little conference room, the first thing he would do is say, Charlie, can you put the coffee on? And of course, accommodate him. After the first few meetings, Scott Fisher would accompany Charlie during the interviews. It wasn't that Charlie really got in there and became his buddy, though he got to know him well enough to have him lower his guard. But uh, if, if when the tough questions needed to be answered, Charlie would fire him out. And the one thing we'd rehearse going over, we'd fire these questions back and forth, because Charlie, early on in the case, said the one thing we can't do is show any emotion. I don't care what he says he did to the person or uh, uh, how he mutilated him or anything. Show no emotion, just act like, well, yeah, everybody does that, don't they? Charlie's years of experience working with informants and suspects in the FBI and CIA had taught him that the simple act of respectfully asking questions and withholding judgment could yield far more information than playing bad cop ever would. Hess was never explicitly taught this straightforward interview approach, but his intuition falls in line with current research about interrogation techniques that use threats, intimidation, or violence. Dr. Melissa Rusano is a psychologist who studies interrogation techniques and teaches at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. She says Hess's approach conforms to what she refers to as an inquisitorial, rapport-based approach to questioning. So developing a genuine relationship with the, the, the subject, the suspect, usually actually genuine between the two, but it can be feigned genuineness, I suppose, on the part of the interrogator. Um, although it would have to be, the suspect would have to believe it was genuine to some extent. Um, where the interrogator actually understands where the suspect is coming from um, and can develop a mutual understanding of what the purpose of the interrogation is. Um, we found that rapport-based methods are, are, are more effective than the accusatorial-based methods I've been referring to. So what are the challenges um, that an interrogator faces in creating 
that rapport, which I presume leads to a, a certain amount of trust between uh, the interrogator and the subject. One of the more difficult parts of taking that approach is it's quite different from how investigators are currently trained. So right now, most investigators are trained in a methodology where they ask a lot of direct, closed-ended questions. Uh, they do a lot of talking. They do a lot of questioning. Rapport-based information-gathering approach is quite different than that. The, the investigator should talk very little. A good interrogation um, should be mostly the suspect talking and the interrogator doing very little talking. So one of the, the challenges, I think, actually, is is knowing how to remain quiet and to ask open-ended questions and to ask questions in such a way that will elicit inc increasing amounts of detail from the person they're talking to, which of course is useful if the person is telling you the truth, but can also be useful if the person is being deceitful because a deceitful person will have more difficulty generating increasing levels of detail about a fabricated story. Um, so I think one of the challenges is, is relearning how to do things, which is contrary to what they've been doing for some of them for many years. For Hess, this approach was just natural. So with someone like Robert, it's is it a matter of trying to put them at ease so then they kind of forget that you're not really on the same side? Well, I, I think I think they find that uh, to be uh, strange, different. They've never been talked to that way or handled with... Uh, some delicacy. Let me tell you this. Before every visit I went to the prison to see Robert, the night before, I really stewed how I wanted to present that meeting, what I thought I might be able to get. But never did we have a, quote, argument. It was always pleasant. Not that I came away with something every time. Uh, Robert was very intelligent, but very moody. And if he was in the right mood, might very well give me something that would be usable. By usable, he means information that the Apple Dumpling Gang could use to figure out who his victims were and to independently verify that it was, in fact, Robert Brown who had killed them. If they hope to use Brown's testimony to solve cold cases, to bring closure to the families of those who Brown killed, they needed names and dates. They needed evidence. Brown did offer good information on a murder he'd committed in the town of Flatonia, Texas, as well as on a couple of murders from his hometown of Cushada, Louisiana. The El Paso County Sheriff's Department presented the facts to police in those towns, but the cases were decades old and, as Scott Fisher tells it, local authorities chose not to pursue them. We gave them a lot of very detailed information. I remember one specific case in in Texas that we we had that the Brown kind of drew uh, drew out a little map of where he left the body and, and and the body had been dismembered and exactly how the body parts were there. And when we sent it to the one of the retired uh, investigators that had worked the case, he said Brown's drawing was 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 better than his drawing when he was standing in there at the site doing it. Uh, there, there was some very, particularly in Louisiana, there were some very, very prosecutable cases, but basically, uh, I don't know what it costs to, to take a case these days, but, you know, it's, it could be twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to 
brought a case to the courts. And I don't believe any any of the DAs uh, wanted to expend their county's money to get a sentence uh, that was unnecessary. And so they just dropped him. While the Apple Dumpling Gang was determined to get another conviction for Brown, other states were reluctant to devote resources to chasing down decades-old leads. If Brown was already sentenced to life in prison, what good was another life sentence? For Fisher, it boiled down to closure and a greater certainty that Brown would never be released. You know, if you really want justice, uh, you know, the only thing you can do is somehow or another give the, uh, the dead victim life again. Um, short of that, it's, it's all a compromise. And um, my job was to keep them off the streets. And You know, you never know what the courts are going to do or what you, know, you, you have evidence that somehow or another was misprocessed or whatever, and, and uh, uh, somebody gets off. So if you've got a serial killer that you know is going to kill again, uh, the best thing to do is at least get two or three consecutive life sentences and make certain they don't ever get on the street again. But getting those extra convictions would come at a cost. Brown had demands, and Charlie did his best to meet them. He arranged for Brown to be seen by another doctor, and he tried to ensure that, if Brown cooperated, he'd be transferred to a different prison, where Brown believed he'd get better treatment. For Charlie, the trade-off was worth it. You know, since things were quid pro quo, I knew I was giving things. Did I feel like it was power over me? Hell no. The big thing was, hey, we can get closure for this family. They finally know who, who killed their son or daughter or, or whatever it was. Um, my drive, let's say, um, maybe ego was involved, I don't know. But my, my drive was, let's find out who you've killed and how we can try and get that information to someone who cares about the individual who was the victim. And did, did that seem to resonate with him at all, the idea of the closure for the victims? No, no. He, no, didn't, no. With other states unwilling or unable to act on the confessions that Brown had offered, they set their sights on a case in their jurisdiction, the murder of the woman with the white Grand Dam. In one of their first face-to-face meetings, Brown had told Charlie the gruesome facts with chilling detachment. He'd met the girl while working at a convenience store in Colorado Springs. She was young, only 15, but already married and the mother of a baby girl. Her husband had taken their daughter to Florida to visit his family, and Brown convinced her to spend an evening with him. They went back to his apartment, and, as Brown described it, they did their thing, then he strangled her. He disposed of her body in a dumpster, went to her apartment, took her TV, her diamond ring, and drove off in the Grand Am, which he ditched a couple days later. They knew the facts of the crime, but not the name of the girl. They pinpointed an apartment complex where they thought she'd lived. They tracked down all the Grand Ams that had been reported stolen in the area during the late 80s. They whittled that list down to a shorter one of cars that fit the profile, but they found nothing connected to a missing persons report. Then, in the spring of 2005, a young detective looking through the list noticed something strange with the VIN number on one of the cars. 
A letter had been misentered. He was one of these rare people that had bothered to even learn exactly what each character of a VIN number stands for and what it means. And he knew one of them was wrong. And uh, so he got to uh, digging into it, and uh, he came up with a, you know, a name and showed it to us. And Charlie immediately turned around and, and started looking for the guy. The guy was Joseph Sperry. His wife, Rocio Sperry, had gone missing in 1987. She had never been found. Well, Rocio Sperry, a local girl, she just evaporated. Her family thought that uh, she just left her husband uh, because things weren't really as good as they could be. Uh, Rocio's daughter, who was now an adult these many years after the fact, actually thought, at least this is what I took away from her conversation, but I always think that she thought that her father had something to do with it. Rocio was the woman with the Grand Dam from Brown's letters. They presented their case to Brown, and he agreed to plead guilty for her murder in exchange for a transfer to a prison in Minnesota. Uh, I was at the trial where Brown confessed and was sentenced, and apparently uh, the, Sperry, uh, the Sperry's family and certainly his in-laws uh, suspected that he was the one that had killed her. And so they had kept him from his daughter. I think she was maybe six or eight months old the last time he saw her. And they had kept them separated all those years. And they were sitting together at the sentencing of the hearing. And uh, uh, you could just you could just tell that, that after all these years of her thinking her father had killed her mother, and finding out that somebody else did it. And uh, it was just a very emotional uh, scene. And uh, it uh, really made it seem all worthwhile. In the summer of 2006, Brown got a second life sentence for the murder of Rocio Sperry. There was a press conference. The facts of the crime were laid out. The Apple Dumpling Gang was commended for their work. They assumed that Brown had committed many more murders, probably more than 20, possibly a lot more than that, but it was unlikely he'd ever be tried for them. But at least they'd brought closure and something resembling justice to one more case, one more family. Soon after Brown's conviction, the Apple Dumpling Gang disbanded. Scott moved to Breckenridge with his wife and then to Florida. Lou Smith went on to help police departments around the country organize their cold case files using the techniques that he'd developed working with Charlie and Scott. He passed away in 2010 after a battle with colon cancer. Charlie continued to work on cold cases in Colorado Springs, but less than a year after Brown's conviction, he ended his formal relationship with the police department. Scott Fisher still keeps a picture of the Apple Dumpling Gang on his desk at home, a memento of his time with Charlie and Lou. Between he and Lou Smith, I I thought I was getting a Ph.D. in homicide investigation. That you could not have gotten a better training ground. Of course, at my age, it was mostly wasted because I'm <laughs> not doing it anymore. But um, you could not have, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a shame there wasn't a young detective in there doing this with him instead of me. It, 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 these guys were pros and they knew what they were doing, and, and I, I learned how to how to do the game.
Fisher remembers a time during the Brown investigation when the sheriff's department brought in some FBI profilers to spend a week evaluating their investigation. At the end of the week, everybody got in the room and and, uh, waited for the profilers to to tell us how we ought to be doing this. And and basically they said, you know, uh, Charlie Hess has gotten this guy farther along than we would ever dream possible. After all that he's seen, the wars and the murders, Charlie Hess remains remarkably sanguine. Has has this whole uh, exchange with Robert and, and your experiences with him, has this changed the way that you see people around you or the, the way that you think about, I mean, even human nature in general? No, it doesn't. I, You know, I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to prove anything concerning stuff like that. Uh, the only... The only ones I'm concerned with are the ones who are in prison for something. And I want to find out if there's more. At 88, he's still living in Colorado Springs with his wife, Patty, still looking for cases he might be able to crack open. Got one going on right now. And uh, I think there's more. Is it another sort of serial type situation? I have no idea. It's just a gut feeling. Many thanks to Kurt Bunch, who voiced the letters of Robert Charles Brown, to Mike Purcell, who voiced the letters of Charlie Hess, to our production assistant, Amelia Whitmer, and to our intern, Emily Frogen. Thanks also to David Say, who, along with Charlie Hess, co-authored Hello, Charlie, the 2008 book that first detailed this story. All the music in this episode was written and recorded by my amazing co-producer, Jake Brownell. Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC Radio Colorado College in Colorado Springs. You can stream this episode again and comment at krcc.org. We also encourage you to subscribe to our podcast at iTunes. For Wish We Were Here and Radio Colorado College, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black.